Father, we come and we are amazed at your grace. We are overwhelmed by your mercy. And we just are a people here gathered, not because of anything that we have done, not because we deserve it or we've earned it. We're here purely because you have called us out from among our sins. You've called us to trust in your son. We've been born again. We're a redeemed people. We are forgiven. We've been declared righteous. We have been given new life. We're new creations. And so we come to you, Lord, and we're eager to hear from you as our father. We're eager to hear from you as our master. We're eager to hear from you as our destiny and as our life. And so I pray that you would help us to uh, place ourselves under what we hear. And right now, right now, each of us, Lord, we commit to obeying what you are about to say. It's not an issue of whether we're going to obey. It's how is it going to work out in my life? How am I going to pursue this? So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, let's take a look. Now, before Family Feud was a game show, two families became synonymous with a family feud. And you know their names. The Hatfields and the and the McCoys. Now, isn't that amazing? If I if you just say the Hatfields, you're automatically gonna say what? The McCoys. Why? Now isn't this ironic? These two families who wanted nothing to do with each other. Now, on the basis of their hatred, are forever, forever linked together. That's just, there's just irony in that. Uh, now, right now, if you're not aware of it on the History Channel, just this past week, they had a mini-series mini starring Kevin Costner as the patriarch of the Hatfield clan. And so they've also had some documentaries on that. It's just very interesting uh, studying this out. Now, you know what's interesting about the Hatfield-McCoy feud? We all know about it, but does anyone here know how it started? Does anyone know how it started? Somebody killed a pig? Well, you know, that, that, that is. That's one of the likely scenarios. The reality is, it's like most long-time feuds. Nobody really knows. Here's all this killing. Here's all this hatred. They're infamous for all of this, and the real source of it, no one can really remember. And yet, John's right uh, that some of the some of the some people believe it, it's bad blood that still spilled over from the Civil War. All of this happened in the 1800s, right at the end of the Civil War. And if, in case you didn't know it, the Hatfields fought for the Confederacy, and they lived in West Virginia on one side of of a river called Tug Fork. And the McCoys fought for the Union, and they lived right across the river in Kentucky. So, you know, this is early on, and, and, and everything's all blurry. There's not definite lines. But here they are, right there, right next to each other. And many people believe it just the Civil War continued for these two families. It never, it never really ended. And then there is the incident of the pig. Who really owned the pig? Now, you think it through that. That's usually how it is as well. All this feuding over what? Over what? Over who owned a pig? In 1873 was the, the pig issue. Who owned the pig? And n less than two years later, the first death occurred. The first killing occurred. Then in 1878, you had a little Romeo and Juliet scenario to where a Hatfield uh, got a McCoy pregnant and uh, that caused a whole sorts of ruckus. And then it didn't help any when the Hatfield abandoned the pregnant McCoy girl and married her cousin, who was also a McCoy. Okay, so we got, you know, this is real hillbilly soap opera action going on. Now, in 1829, 1891, I'm sorry, 1891, 18 years later, the two families finally agreed to stop fighting. 18 years later. But the damage had already been done. Twelve dead. You know, Gwen and I, we were talking about twelve dead. Wow, you'd think for all the, the history of this feuding, you'd think there was more, you know. But you got to step back. Twelve people dead in two families is huge. Devastating. Horrible, horrible consequences. Twelve dead uh, combined from both families. A mini civil war. I mean, I'm talking all out shooting and I mean a, 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 an army on this side an army on that side a civil war uh, the US Supreme Court deciding making decisions over court issues and governors of both states were involved all over a pig 
right? You know, a family feud. In 1891, they stopped, They agreed to stop fighting, but the damage was done. Here's two families who are now famous, but famous for what? Killing each other. Killing each other. As re- Now, this, this is going to blow you away. As recent as 2000, the f- two families went to court over access to a cemetery. Okay, so that thing is still, still going on. Even now in this generation, 2000, they go to court. And in 2003, the court decision was finally given. And, of course, in true Hatfield and McCoy fashion, they both declared partial victory. Okay, so there you go. The family feud, the battle, the war, how to handle those who hate you and or hurt you. Look in your notes. The Hatfields and the McCoys forgot they, they lived by one of these rules, and the rule that they lived by was the get-even rule. The get-even rule. And what we learned last or two weeks ago what that was. Do to others what they do to you, or even better, do it to them before they do it to you. That's the root. I mean, you can study this whole Hatfield-McCoy thing out, but it all comes down to that. Okay, the get-even rule. What they needed to live by and what it took them forever to understand was the golden rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. But even better, as Christians who have received the mercy of God while we were yet God's enemies, we ought to do for them what God has already done for us in Christ. Now, what's this mean? It means merciful living to our enemies. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We've been looking at Romans chapter 12. And let's read again verses 17 through 21. Because in Romans 12, 17 through 21, I promise you today, if you will take these five principles, there's five verses, and there's one major principle for every verse. And if you'll take these and you'll put them on your refrigerator, you'll stick them in your Bible, you'll pray over them, and you'll think. And we said uh, two weeks ago that, uh, you know, if if, if you're someone who has never had anybody hurt you, you've never had anybody hate you, you've never been unjustly hurt, you've never been falsely accused, then then you're not going to get much out of this. You're not going to see a value in this. But anybody... Uh, who has lived very long has had that happen. You just, and here's the thing. You say, well, I'm uh, too loving of a person for that to happen to me. Well, you just missed the point. The more loving you are, the more apt you are to be betrayed. The more loving you are, the more apt you are to be hurt. And the sad reality is the kinder you are to others, the more apt you are to have those who will hate you. Yes, even for that kindness. So let's look at Romans 12 and let's look at 17 through 21. It says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. See, contrary to the avengers, you don't need them. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Here's the bottom line. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we said that we needed to put this passage into perspective. And, and so I won't reteach these points, but I will, we, we do need to think through it and just remember that, first of all, this passage refers to being hurt or hated due to Christ-likeness, not our own foolishness or our own sinfulness. Okay, so you got to get that, you know, we, don't, we just don't blow through life just being sinful and then, then wonder why, you know, people hurt us or hate us, you know. It, it's the idea of Christ-likeness. Secondly, it focuses on enemies who are outsiders and unbelievers, but it applies to all people even insiders and believers. And remember we've been saying, and it's so true in life, that sin blurs the line between family and fr- uh, family and foes, between friends and enemies. And often we're not sure. And th- you say, well, man, I just don't think that's really true. Well, who were Jesus' greatest enemies? Yeah, his own people. And who didn't believe on him initially? His own family called him crazy, 
Sounds a little hurtful to me, okay? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people who were looking for Messiah, who should have been his greatest supporters, were in fact the ones who falsely accused him and paid others. So you've just got to understand that this basically applies to all people. We said life is messy. And here's the reality. More than likely, it takes a, a... Michael Card used to have a song about the Judas kiss. And, and I forget exact wording, but the point of the song was this. It takes a friend to really hurt you. Okay, it takes, a, it takes getting close to someone. So as you right now think about that person who has hurt you, unjust, unfair. You think of that person who is working against you, who, who has, has put up a barrier between you and them. And when you think about that, more than likely that person has been a family member or a friend or maybe even a fellow believer. It's just the way it is. Thirdly, we need to remember this applies to personal relationships, not national responsibilities. Remember, don't go crazy on this and think, oh, the United States should be doing this in relation to its enemies, its political enemies. No, that doesn't apply. We'll see in Romans 13. Number four, and this is perhaps most important, it presents merciful living for those who have already received God's mercy in Christ. This is not an unrealistic ideal. These five principles not only can be fulfilled by true believers, but they must be fulfilled. They're commands. We don't don't look at these five principles and go, wow, that's too hard. Or that one I can do, that one I can't. Or we look at people and say, well, I can apply it to that person, but it's that person I can never apply it to. Now, let me just help you out right now. That person that you could never apply it to, that's the person you need to be thinking about. The person I could never apply that to is exactly the person then that in God's mercy you are to show merciful living to, as I am I. So how do we apply this lesson? Well, it's the title of the series, Only by the Mercies of God. You see, here's the problem. Most of us as Christians are trying to fulfill the Christian life in the power of our own flesh, in our own reasoning, in our own thinking. Well, that's no different than the world. Okay? But when we come to this and say, wow, I I have received the mercy of God when I was an enemy, when I was hurting him, when I was breaking his heart, when I was, yes, hating him. Every time we sin, we're hating God. We're hating God, we're hating his righteousness, we're attacking him. It's an attack. Well, I don't mean to attack him, yes, but our sin does that. He showed us that mercy. And so, remember Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Fulfill Romans 12.17. And so we looked at five principles. First was resist your instinct for revenge. Okay, that's, you know, tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, settle the score, don't get mad, get even, do unto others before they do unto you. Payback is a, well, you know what it is. Don't do that. We taught that. Second principle was this. Pursue a lifestyle of peace. Notice what it says. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And we talked about how this is kind of a a loophole verse. You know, people want to say, well, and, and, and listen, I'm just I'm going to hammer this again because I, I've seen it uh, over and over and over. Well, I tried. It doesn't work. That's not what this verse is saying. That This verse is not saying go and try once to make peace with your enemies. And if it doesn't work, walk away to never try again. I tried. It didn't work. That's not what this passage is saying. And as we looked at it, we saw that, yes, indeed, peace is possible when you offer it and they accept it. It takes a truce. Both sides have to lay down their arms. But peace is impossible when you repeatedly offer it and they repeatedly reject it. But I want, to circle, I want you to circle a couple words in that principle. Circle the words repeatedly. Repeatedly. Because it's in the present tense. Pursue. Pursue means I'm constantly pursuing a lifestyle of peace. I don't stop pursuing. I don't stop trying. I don't stop offering. Here's the biggest clue. Right now, let me give you the big clue. You never shut the door. You never shut the door to peace and the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation. You leave, how I say it, I leave 
The door of my heart is open. The door of my heart. That means I'm like the prodigal father. I'm busy with my circle of responsibility, which is at the home. The prodigal son is off living in the pigsty. He's hurt me, and in a sense, he has hated me for what he has done. But I don't chase after him and try to control that and and influence him and change him. I stay in my circle of responsibility. But that prodigal father always kept one eye on his responsibilities and one eye on the horizon so that when that son came home, He ran to meet him. See, that's an open heart. He ran to meet him. And then when the son, with a true repentance, began to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? He stops him and says, you don't have to go into the details. You don't have to jump through my hoops. You don't have to prove anything to me. Your heart is evident in your words. Stop right there. All is forgiven. That's what happens when you have a forgiving attitude and you pursue a lifestyle of peace. The first thing out of your heart and out of your mind is not all the nitty-gritty. Here's what conflict's like with those who hurt and hate you. It's like a big pile bowl of spaghetti. Now, some people think that to, to make peace and to pursue peace, we've got to take that bowl of spaghetti and take every noodle out and have it straight. And then lay each one in line. Then once we've corrected every, every, every hurt that you have said, we got to repeat every hurt. We got to go through it. I've got, I've got to make you feel the hurt that you caused me. I've got to, we've got to sort through every one of these details. In fact, in case we miss some, I've written them in my little book. And some people literally write them in little books and keep them on shelves. Others, of us write them in the little book of our heart and we can just rattle right through now can you imagine taking a bowl of spaghetti and and it's just a big bowl of spaghetti and your job and it's all full of sauce right because spaghetti without sauce isn't good although i know some people eat it with butter but crazy okay put sauce on it. now here's what your job is take all those noodles out and lay them all straight in line now what's going to happen to that sauce and what's going to happen to you It's going to be messy. And at the end of it, guess what? You're going to have more noodles messed all up. So you've got to get rid of that idea. A forgiving heart says, yeah, the bowl of noodles is there. And if I wanted to rehearse it, I could go all through it. But I don't want to rehearse it. And I'll tell you this from experience. If you will have that kind of heart, over time, you'll forget. You'll forget. Well, I remember something was pretty painful back there that you did, but I can't quite remember it. Why? Because I've been pursuing a lifestyle of peace. I haven't been rehearsing it. I haven't been going back over it and back over it. I haven't replayed it every time that person's name comes up. I haven't rehearsed it to all of my friends to get them on my side. And so... If you repeatedly offer it and they repeatedly reject it, yes, you can't do it. So we saw what is the most peaceful way to keep responding? What is the most peaceful way? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Each of these is a question. What is the most peaceful way? See, I can't give you five steps on how to deal with those who are you are in conflict with or who have a conflict unjustly with you. But I can give you five questions. And, and, and the first question is, how can I not take revenge? You know, what, what, what is the best way to do that? The second is, how, what is the most peaceful way? And we said there was, I at least gave you two principles, both from Philippians chapter 4. Keep praying for them and keep doing your part to pursue peace. And what that means is living out a Christ-like life toward them. Now, I will admit to you, that's the hardest question to ask. You see, there's two ideas. Well, actually, there's really one major idea. How would Christ act toward... We think that means lay down and be a wet noodle. This is kind of the noodle illustration. We think that that Jesus was this wet noodle. And so we think of him just not saying anything, letting them put him on the cross. Just just run over me. I'm a I'm a I'm a you know, I'm a a doormat. Just stomp on me. I'm 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 going to be like Christ. And that's a popular conception, and there's times for that. There is times for that. But you got to understand, this is a man who also overturned the tables of the money changers. This is the man who spoke to Pharisees and to the hypocrites and to the uh, legalists and to the nitpickers 
and I got a friend who calls them burger pickers, but they're nitpickers, uh, and uh, who are just always, he called them vipers and whitewashed tunes. You know, so there, there's this difficulty in just what Christ-likeness is. Well, I, I tell you this, the greatest benefit I've gotten from this study is I think it's these five principles. If you really work through these five principles, you'll get a handle on how Christ would respond in your situation. So we've looked at, at the first two. Let's look at the third one. Get out of God's way. The most Christ-like thing you can do is just get out of God's way. We see this in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, we, we did go through this. I, I, I'll make one observation. Look at that verse. As you look at that verse, uh, we who live in the 21st century don't quite catch this. And if we're, if we're new to the Bible, we certainly will miss it. But do you realize in this one verse, in verse 19, get out of God's way, Paul references all three parts of the Old Testament. He references the law because he quotes from Deuteronomy Vengeance is mine. That's a Deuteronomy passage. He quotes from the writings, which is the the wisdom literature, Proverbs, when he says, I will pay back for what he was done. I will do to him as he's done for me. Leave it to the wrath of God. That's, That's the book of Proverbs. We're seeing the book of Deuteronomy. And then when he says, says the Lord, that's not in the Proverbs passage. That's not in the Deuteronomy passage. That's the prophets. That's what the prophets always says, says the Lord. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I don't care where you look in the Old Testament. And by the way, I am writing to you the New Testament. It doesn't matter where you look in the Bible. Who's the only one who is to judge? God. So get out of his way. Because I'm telling you, as you read through, as watching, if you uh, do the historical study of the Hatfields and McCoys, the whole point was vengeance is whose? It's the Hatfields. And then it becomes vengeance is whose? The McCoys. And then who does it become? Vengeance, you know, and, and, and so you're back and forth, back and forth. The only problem is you've got to get out of God's way. McCoy, by the way, was a Bible-quoting, praying guy. He was killing people. So what does this mean? Well, we should get out. Why should we get out of God's way? We said, first of all, it's his responsibility. His responsibility is vengeance. It's not ours. That was the first thing. It's his responsibility. Mine. Mine is vengeance. I myself will repay. I love how the message says it, uh, paraphrases it. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. You see, really what we're looking at is a trust issue. Can I? But they're getting away with it. No, they're not. Yes, but they need to pay now. No, they don't. They will pay when God says they need to pay, and no one's getting away with anything, and payday someday. That was a famous sermon, payday someday. It's his responsibility, not ours. Again, we're back to circles of responsibility. What are the three circles? Mine, theirs, my enemies, and then whose? God's. And it's God's, it's God's circle of responsibility to lay down judgment and cursing. Secondly, his judgment is better than ours, and his mercy is greater than ours. When it says, says the Lord, it's referring back to this gracious Redeemer. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you, if you want to understand what, it mean, what Paul means when he says the Lord, you just got to go back to our study of Romans 9. This God who's able to give long-suffering wrath, this God who's able to give abundant riches of mercy, That's the kind of judge. Isn't that the kind of judge you want? That's the kind of judge we want. Not a distortion, all wrath or all mercy. And so here's the fact, and we said this. We simply aren't enough like God to step in and fulfill his role. We just got to get out of God's way and let him do what he does best. And you know what he does? Two things that he does best. We saw in Romans 9. First of all, his wrath comes, but it's what? Long-suffering. So when you think someone's getting away with something, no one's getting away with anything. It's just God being long-suffering. And before you think that's not fair, wait a minute. That's what he was with me. 17 years he was that with me. And now, every year since, he is still that way. And he's that way with you. 
So before we want less for others, we better ask ourselves, am I asking for less for myself? And when we look there, we also see that his mercy is abundantly rich to the undeserving. And so that's how we should live towards others. Third, his timing is perfect and his judgments are unsearchable. When it says to give room for the wrath of God, it means wait for it. Wait for it. And uh, we did look at these two illustrations, Herod, the persecutor of James. See, again, all of the context for this is persecution, okay, by enemies of Christ-like people. So who persecuted Stephen? One, the guy that held the coat, the guy who probably gave the decision to say, go for it, stone him. He's, he's, he's a blasphemer. He's, he's an ungodly man when, in fact, he was, he's one of the most Christ-like examples in Scripture, Stephen. That was the Apostle Paul. Or actually, Saul of Tarsus. You know, you got to understand that. And what did God do? Now, you know, if I was Stephen, Stephen, I'm getting pelted with stones, and Saul is standing over there. What would I be? I'd be praying, God, get him. All I'm doing is being like you. Get him. Of course, what does Stephen pray? Father, forgive them, just like his Lord. And what did God do? He showed abundant mercies. That all happened in Acts 7 and 8, in Acts 9. Christ saves Saul. He becomes Paul, the greatest missionary. And the guy, and, and, and we remember it. He said, I am a picture of God's mercy to sinners. Yet, you move forward to Acts 12, and you have King Herod, who has James, the leader of the church, the brother of John, one of Jesus' three, has him executed and martyred for his Christianity then receives worship from, the, the, from his citizens as God, and what does God do to him? Boom, strikes him dead. See, that's the God we serve. You say, that's not fair. Well, which of the two, Herod and Saul, deserved to die immediately? Both. One got what he deserved. One got what he did not deserve. That's called mercy. Well, who determined that? The just judge. Yeah, but he didn't consult with me. Duh. Duh. I didn't get in on that. And guess what? He didn't consult with Stephen. Stephen, do you think Saul should be saved or not? He didn't ask that. And he didn't consult with Herod or the, or the people he was persecuting. You think I should kill Herod or not? He consulted within himself and his perfect character. So that's a key concept. And so what does that mean? Number four, his love can be trusted even when we're being hurt or hated. I think it's, it is so significant that Paul chooses to begin this with beloved. You've just got to understand that when you're being hurt, God still loves you. When you're being hated, God still loves you. And let me say this. That's the only one that really matters. That's the only one who really if I have his love and I truly trust that love, then I can endure anything. I am beloved. I am chosen. He has chosen me when I was his enemy. He has showered me with his mercy, shown me his love. I can endure. I can stand for this. So here's the question. What is the most trusting way to respond to the hurt and the hate? That's the question. What is the most trusting way? How, and the most trusting way is get out of God's way. Get out of God's way. Now, fourth principle, kill your enemies with kindness. Yeah. Right? That's the part we're really getting excited about. Kill your enemies with kindness. Principle number four. Look at verse 20. When he says to the contrary, he's not, he's not saying to the contrary of getting out of God's way. He's saying to the contrary of seeking revenge. To the contrary of your natural instinct, he says this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That is counterintuitive. If he give him something to drink, not poison, counterintuitive. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Let me give you two principles on this critical verse. And again, this is one that often uh, we're from. How many are you familiar with this verse? And yet, often, we kind of misapply it and we misunderstand. So let's look at it. First of all, mercy is shown in simple acts of kindness. Mer- See, if you want to say, how, how do I show mercy to, to anyone? 
Well, first of all, uh, three weeks ago in lesson two, we saw 12, a dozen ways to show mercy to someone. A dozen ways. Remember on Mother's Day? Go back, glenwoodconnection.org, look by the Mercies of God series, 12, a dozen ways, and they're all concrete little acts of kindness. How do you show mercy to an enemy when they're hungry? What do you do? Buy them a Big Mac. Well, that could be not merciful, actually. Uh, Give them an apple, okay? When they're thirsty, what do you do to them? You give them a drink. Now, let's look at this. Here's what John Stott says. Our personal responsibility is to love and serve our enemy according to his needs and genuinely seek his highest good. Now, what's that mean? That means I can't stiff arm my enemy because I don't know what his needs are if I'm not if I'm not aware of him, if I'm not embracing her, if I'm not trying to understand them, if, if I'm attacking them, I have no idea what their needs are. But if I've laid down my sword and I've got my heart open to peace, then I can figure out, okay, what do they need? What do they need? And it's simple stuff. Here's how John Calvin says it. He now shows us how we may really fulfill the precepts of not revenging and not repaying evil. Even when we not only, even when we not only abstain from doing injury, but when we also do good to those who have done wrong to us. For, now listen to this next sentence. Talk about a guy who studies the heart, his own sinfulness. Listen to what he says. For it is a kind of an indirect retaliation when we turn aside our kindness from those by whom we have been injured. See what he said. This, this is how Christians get revenge. You know how Christians get revenge? They don't keep the card and egg the person's house. You know that that's how unsafe people get revenge. You know how Christians get revenge? Well, there's something kind I could do to them, but I'm just not going to do it. And that way, no one can see me overtly attacking them. No one can see me. You know, it's, it's seemingly, look, I'm, I'm just, hey, as much as it depends on me, I'm just pursuing peace. Yeah, but you're not doing anything to show them mercy. You're not reaching out to them. You're not showing them love. And so I think that's a great statement, a convicting one, but a great one. Here's, here, here's what we need to do. Give to your enemies what they need most. And notice, giving them food and drink means they're going to live longer. Right? Giving them food and drink means you're going to live longer. I want you to live. And what does our nature say? I want you to die. And die painfully. And die slowly. And die justly. And if I can stick the dagger in and twist it, all the better. And you know what this this is saying? I want you to live. I want you to live an abundant life free of hate. I tell you, as you as you go through this, go through this uh, documentary of the McCoys and Hatfields, your heart just breaks. Just breaks. Because both men at the end are just broken. They're broken. They've broken so many others in the process. Um, give your uh, now here, here's a great principle. Write this one down. Give your enemies what they won't give you. That's what this means. See, in those days, to persecute a Christian meant to cut them off from their livelihood. Saul of Tarsus was trying to kill people. He was entering, he was taking from, and there's coming a day, I believe, even in this country. There's coming a day in a generation where the government, those who are opposed to Christianity, will try to cut off our livelihood. Now, what he's saying is, give to your enemy what they won't give to. Here's the bottom line. Your enemies won't give you forgiveness. So what do we give them? Forgiveness. What do they need most? Forgiveness. What are your enemies not giving you? Mercy. So what should we show them? Mercy. What do they need? See how this works? I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful principle. Give your enemies what your need from them is, but they refuse to give you. See, again, if you want to really get into the heart aspect of this, then ask yourself this. What is it that I need from them? Why, are they, why does it hurt so bad? What is it that they won't give me? Well, they won't give me acceptance. Okay, so what should I give them? Acceptance. What is it that they won't give me? They won't give me a break. So what should I give them? A break. They won't give me a kind word. So what should I give them? A kind word. Now, is that just not good? Is that just good? Now, I'll tell you this. I can't do that without Christ. 
I can't do that without staying connected. And I'll tell you this, I can't do that as long as I'm focused on them and their behavior and their actions. You know what I got to get focused on? Every, at least, I'm just telling you out of my life, I've got to focus on the cross and the mercies of God, the mercies of God, the mercies of God. He had a kind word for me when I didn't have a kind word for him. He had mercy for me when I wasn't seeking it. He had forgiveness for me when I was persistent in my sin. All of this that I'm to do to my enemies, God has done to me. I must look to him. I'll never forget, there was a bully and a toady. Do you know what a toady is? It's the little weak individuals that run around with bullies. Okay? Bullies always have toadies. If you don't understand what I'm saying, watch the Christmas story. Okay? I mean, I I can't believe. Who knows what I'm talking about? All right, okay. So I had this bully in high school that God sovereignly arranged right after I got saved who this demon-possessed, drug-infested guy. I mean, he had red glowing eyes like the devil, Rick. I do not, I mean, red-rimmed eyes. And for some reason, picked me. And he had this his little toady. And they just, they harassed me. I went home in high school. I, I was just frozen. I, I was convinced because I would hear the, the threats every day in my ear as we sat in class. We're going to get you. We're going to get you. You look back and the eyes are glowing. You know, it was just freaky. So I was just saved. And this is the beauty of what God does for you when you're a new Christian to build your faith. So I, I, I prayed for the, you know, in this kind of circumstance for the first time in life. I, I was coming here. I had accepted Christ. I said, God, I, you know, I didn't pray for him to judge him, kill him or anything. I prayed him for to save me. Save me. Deliver me. I, I, you know, you, you know, you're embarrassed. You don't want to tell anybody about that. You don't tell your parents about that. I had no one to turn to, but now I'm a Christian. I turned to my heavenly Father. I don't know how the span was. Next week, I don't know. All of a sudden, red rim demon boy is gone from school in the middle of the year. I don't know if he OD'd. I don't know. I don't know what God did with him. God just took him out. Now, toadies are weak, are, are purposeless, and we, you know. Weak without the, you know. At the same time, there was a test we had to take. And, 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 and the test was, uh, in fact, uh, Mrs. Pyle, uh, Troy had her, Troy Adrian had her. And uh, favorite teacher, anyway, you had to have your pencil test day or you flunked the test. Pencil. Well, God works this thing out to where the toady boy didn't have a pencil. So Mrs. Pyle says, does anybody have a pencil to give toady? She didn't call him. That's, that's uh, and believe me. I know she thought that. I, that you, know, you know how that works. Teachers know. She probably had to stop herself. Anybody have a pencil for Toadie? And uh, again, just by the grace of God, the mercies of God, I just remember saying, I do. And this kid's face just, his jaw dropped, countenance changed. And from that point on, the rest of that year, he would come up to me in the library when I'm sitting with people, and they'd say, he'd say, Chris is the greatest guy. I mean, he was just like, he was like, it was like I was running for student council president. And he, and he was my campaigner, you know. And it was like embarrassing, really. But, it was, but I, I just remember as a new believer stopping back and just and going, wow. You know, that's a simple act of kindness. Can heap these hot coals. And, and, can, and it, does it always work that way? No, but God gave me that. To realize that, Chris, when it doesn't quite work this way and the demon boy beats you up and, and toady boy stomps on you and, and, and it seems like I don't come through, I'm still in control. So later in life, when, when he doesn't remove the enemy, when he doesn't remove the attacker, you can say, my God still hears my prayers and little acts of kindness still make a difference. Now, that brings us to the second principle. Look in your notes. Mercy shown in simple acts of kindness can be condemning or convicting. This is what heaping hot coals on their head means. So what does this mean? This has been, uh, you know, it's really weird. So let me give you three views and, and, and let's play through this because it's really heaping hot coals on their head. First of all, does that sound like an act of kindness? No. Okay. And here's the first view. The first view sees the hot coals as representing God's fiery wrath and judgment. Fire and fiery coals are often seen as God's judgment in Scripture. We don't have time to go through it. Just think of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is before the holiness of God, and there's the hot coals on the altar. Okay, and so the idea is this. I'm going to be kind, and then God's going to torture them. 
for hate, for resisting my kindness. Now, this is how we usually use this verse, right? I'm going to heap hot coals on their head. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be kind to them so God will heap hot coals. Now, somehow my heart isn't quite aligned with the passage. Would you agree? Okay, so you know, haven't you wanted to do that? I mean, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I take perverse pleasure in my flesh of, well, I'm just going to be Christ-like to them, and that'll get them. You know, that'll get them hot, cold, burn, 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 burn. Okay, many do not, in other words, I'm going to be kind so they'll suffer more and be condemned more by God. Probably doesn't fit with merciful living to our enemy. But hold that thought. Okay, view number two is this. It sees hot coals as representing our enemy's repentance. There's this obscure thing that all commentators quote. There was an Egyptian practice. Sounds bizarre to us, but I don't doubt in back in those days that when you were really repentive of something you had done wrong, you would take a hot coal, a tray of hot coals. And in those cultures, you carry things on your head. And so you these hot coals would be on your head and you'd be walking around. Someone would know they had done something really bad, but now they're really sorry for it. Okay, and they would walk around. So. What, what people believe is we do acts of kindness not so they have greater condemnation, greater wrath, but so they will, they will have greater repentance, so that they will be transformed. I think it was Abe Lincoln who said the best way to, uh, uh, best way to, to kill your, you know, uh, to get rid of your enemies is to turn them into friends. Now, that has some legitimacy in Romans. In Romans 2.4, it says this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know why God doesn't kill all sinners immediately? He's hoping that his kindness, his long suffering will lead them to repentance and they'll come back to him and he won't have to judge them. So many commentators saying the heaping hot coals means this. I'm going to be kind to my enemies, hoping that that will bring repentance and a change of life. Now, I think it's a third view. My view is that the hot coals represent both God's potential wrath and our enemy's potential repentance. What will make the difference? What will make the difference? Their response. Their circle of responsibility. So we're back to the circles. Here's my circle. I'm to show mercy in acts of kindness. Their circle is to repent. But if they choose not to repent, then they will see, receive wrath. And my acts of kindness have the potential to do one of two things. If they resist our kindness, then they will receive greater what? Wrath. But if they allow Christ-like kindness to do its work, they will repent and receive what from God? Mercy. And so I show kindness. My intent is that they repent. And yet if they don't repent, they will receive greater wrath. So the hot coals can do two things, which is really what God does. Now, again, go back to Isaiah 6. He's before a holy God and he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what does God do? He, he has the seraphim take a fiery coal from the altar and lay it on his mouth, which judges his sin but at the same time cleanses it because he is repentive and he says, here my sin me. So I think it's both ways. What John Calvin said about it. He says, I take a simpler view that his mind shall be turned to one side or another. For doubtless our enemy shall either be softened by our benefits or if he be so savage that nothing can tame him, he shall yet be burnt and tormented by the testimony of his own conscience on finding himself overwhelmed with our again in the context Romans 11:22 listen to Romans 11:22 note then the kindness and severity of God severity towards those who have fallen but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness otherwise you too will be cut off that's how God works he shows kindness when we repent we get more mercy when we don't we get more wrath so heaping hot coals is something I do that they may repent, but it's their circle responsibility. My kindness will either bring greater wrath or greater repentance. That's an issue for them and God. Now, here's the question. What's the kindest way to respond to hurt and hate? Randy, 
Randy, come up. I, I got Rand, Randy. We, we've had testimonies in this series. I want you to listen to, to Randy. Uh, powerful testimony on this aspect of killing your enemies with kindness. Uh, first from Ephesians 4.31. Bitterness, wrath, and anger. Put away from you with all malice, kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has I was going through a discipleship process. Uh, gosh, it's almost been uh, 20, uh, 20 some odd years, Chris. And um, Chris was discipling me, and uh, we were making it through the process. And um, one of the things discipleship always does, uh, which is what it should do, is it should surface what is, what's really going on in your heart. And um, one of the things that was going on is I was dealing with a lot of anger from a past uh, divorce, a lot of bitterness that I was dealing with. Now, I'd sought forgiveness from God through that, of course, but I had never really dealt with the anger, the bitterness. And um, in the middle of the discipleship process, um, Chris says, we're stopping here until you're willing to, to suggesting me to talk to my ex-wife and, um, and to seek forgiveness and to be willing to give forgiveness. And that really grabbed me really hard. That was a hard thing to, to think about. And um, I had not had any contact with her for a number of years, and we had no children from that relationship. And it was about 28 years ago. and But I still was carrying a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger, and I was even having some bad dreams about it as well. I hem and hawed probably for a good four or five weeks thinking about how I might call my uh, ex-wife and uh, see if I'd be willing to um, offer forgiveness. I felt the Lord was really talking to me, and I did do that. I uh, called her on the phone. I said to her in as kind a way as I can that uh, I made a lot of mistakes in our marriage. I'd like to ask for forgiveness from you with this. And uh, I also said to her that I am willing to offer forgiveness to you as well. Now, the phone call didn't really go as I'd hoped it to go through. I think I had something in my mind that might go a little different, and there were some rabbit trails that tried to go through, which was fine. And I, I didn't go down those rabbit trails. I stayed focused to the task of trying to offer forgiveness and be kind through this. And the uh, phone call ended. It didn't end on a sour note, but it didn't go quite the way I wanted it to. But I did ask for forgiveness, and I said to her that I'm willing to offer forgiveness to you, that in my heart I'm willing to do that. It was quiet for a while, and then the phone call ended. And then I just prayed after I made that phone call. I said, Lord, I don't know quite what you were doing with that, but I know you're doing something. And um, I said, Lord, it, uh, it feels good to have uh, done this. It seemed within a matter of days, for the first time, I was released of this bitterness that I just read that scripture. I was... Uh, I was no longer angry any longer. All that luggage had really been lifted off. I really went forward with a close relationship to Christ because of that. And that's that's really only a, a God kind of thing. You just can't release that on your own. You need the Lord to intervene. And he wanted me to have a heart that was willing to go before her and say, boy, I was wrong. I made some mistakes. Would you forgive me for that? And I didn't get that released from her, but I sure got it from the Lord, and it's impacted my life. I've shared this testimony. I've been able to share a testimony with other folks that I've witnessed to, folks who've gone through horrible divorces. And when I say that I've offered forgiveness to my ex, ex-spouse at that time, today still being blessed with a wonderful wife that I've married today, that uh, it really gets people thinking about this anger and how we carry this around and what God can do. That, um, and you know, Randy, the story's not done yet. See, we don't know what those hot coals are doing. Believe me, that phone conversation will never be forgotten. And the story's still out. And, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the story because it very well may happen. So what's the fifth principle? It's really simple. Get the victory over your enemies, enemies by being godly and doing good. Get the victory over your enemies by being godly. I th- I think Randy's testimony gives test, is, is a living model of that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the point. Don't become what your enemies are. You've lost the battle. And it's not about your enemy. It's about the devil. He wants to bring us all down to his level. So here's the idea. Don't be what other, don't become what others are. 
and you get the victory. Become like Christ. So let me give you the rest of the story on the McCoys. Although they ended the feud in 1891 and shook hands in 1976. It was on Saturday, June 14, 2003, that marked the official end to the Hatfields and McCoys food feud when the family signed a truce and did so even on the sat- the uh, the uh, Saturday early show. They did it publicly. They did it nationally. Why? Because that's how big their sin had become. And the families credit Rio Hatfield for the official idea of creating a truce for the Hatfields and McCoys. Rio Hatfield and Bo, Bo McCoy, well, you got to love the names, drafted a treaty that proclaims the families, I quote, do hereby informally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. In 1976, representatives of that family shook hands, settled the conflict, and they've celebrated the heritage of their families with joint reunions for the past four years. This year, the Hatfield-McCoy Confab brought out 2,500 to 3,000 family members from both sides. And on the governors of both West Virginia and Kentucky have each drafted an official proclamation acknowledging the Hatfields and McCoys' reconciliation, proclaiming June 14, 2003, as Hatfield-McCoy Reconciliation. You know what? We have a reconciliation day 2,000 years ago, the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's apply these five principles. You say, it's not relevant to me right now. It will be. It will be. But now's the time to enter. Get the victory. Be like God. Do good. Those hate hurt you. Let's pray. Father, we come and we are humbled uh, because the reality is we have needed your mercy. We have hurt you and hated you. And if we've forgotten about that, then we need to be reminded because it makes the riches of your mercy that much greater. And it equips us, it encourages, and it enables us to show that same mercy to others. So I pray, Lord, that these five principles that we have now studied and eternalized will not just be notes that we put away, but principles and truths and convictions that you will seal in our heart. And by your grace through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll give us, me, everyone here, the ability to show this kind of mercy to our enemies because it glorifies your mercy to us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.